The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. He took some of his fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And if we can treat that as a bit of an anatomy of sin, she saw, she coveted, and she took. This is what sin is. Sin is so much more than, than just the actions that we do. Sin begins in, as a disposition, disposition of our heart where we say, I know best, I know what's right for me, I know better than God, I'm going to do what's right for me. We, we see something that God has, pro- has prohibited and we say, no, I know better, we desire it, we covet it, and we take it. Our sin is not just the stuff we do with our hands. It begins with the, dis- with the disposition of our hearts to want to be in the place of God, to shake off the rule of God, to shake off his good and perfect rule over us, and to rule our own lives in his place. And the reality is that when we become a Christian, this doesn't automatically go away. We, we continue to still want to be in the place of God. Yes, we have submitted to God. Yes, we have submitted to his lordship, but that seed still remains. Francis Schaeffer puts it like this. He says, Let us say with tears that a person does not automatically abandon this mentality when he becomes a Christian. In every one of us, there remains a seed of wanting to be boss, of wanting to be in control and have the word of power over our fellows. Let us say with tears... It should grieve our hearts that we continue to want to be in the place of God. It should cause us to weep that we so automatically and so desperately want to be rid of God and to sit on his throne and to be in charge of our lives. And our our grief at our sin, our grief at what that does to God, how that hurts our Savior, that should drive us to want to weed that out. Why? Because that's what separates us from God. The reason why I say all that is because the part of the Bible that we're looking at today in the Old Testament is the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We've been taking these uh, very large uh, strides for the past four weeks, looking, at the, looking through the Old Testament. Part of the reason why we have been go- doing this series, going through the Old Testament, is because I want us as a church to have confidence when we open God's word, confidence of God's love for us, and confidence that we can actually understand what it's saying. So we're doing this eight-week uh, series through the Old Testament. It's a very brief flyover. It's like a, from a bird's-eye view of the Old Testament, just to give us a bit of clarity what the Old Testament is really about. And my, my hope is that as we continue to understand the Old Testament, continue to understand what God's Word says, it's, it's going to grow us in our faith. It's going to grow us in our understanding also of the New Testament, that we will grow us as disciples. My, my greatest ambition as your pastor is that you would grow in your faith and become more and more like Jesus. That's what I really, really care about. So that's the point of this series. And these books, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, they form a crucial part of the storyline because they detail a very important part of God's promise to Israel coming to fulfillment, coming to fruition. You see, God created his world. He created this world. He created his people to live under his blessing in his place. And like what the kids are learning this morning, sin came along and sin messed that up. And so God promised to put that back together again. And he came to a man named Abraham and promised that this would begin with his family. And as we've been walking through the Old Testament, we've been tracking God's promise with that family. And last week we looked at Exodus, how this family of God had grown bigger and bigger. They were in, in, in Egypt under, under, this, under the rule of, uh, of the Egyptian pharaohs. 
And then God rescued them. He rescued, so it's God's people being rescued out of Egypt and being brought towards the promised land, being brought towards the place that God was going to give them. And here in Joshua is where they get the land. So currently right now, in where we're at in our chronology of the Old Testament, that God's people are out of Egypt. They're, they are under his rule in the sense that they have the tabernacle, they have the, the law, they have the sacrificial system, but they aren't yet in the place that God was going to give them. But that changes here in Joshua. The story of Joshua is the story of God leading Israel into the promised land and Israel having the task of driving out the people who were living there at the time. When we read through the Old Testament, we can't escape the fact that what God was doing here, what God was calling Israel to do, was to drive out the Canaanites that were before them. And the reason why is because at this particular point in time, the sin of the Canaanites had reached incredible heights. Perverse sexual, sexual immorality was the norm, and child sacrifice was widely practiced. This place was full of sinful idol worship, and Israel had to root it out before they could settle down. They had to, before they could move in and, and build their houses and build their towns and move in, they had to root it out. They had to get rid of it, lest, lest they become influenced by the Canaanites who were living there and drawn away from God. As I was writing this sermon on Thursday, a buddy of mine um, in uh, Brisbane called and said, hey, I've just got a quick question about grass, about lawns. And I was like, man, you have no idea how relevant this is. And he's like, I've just moved into a new place and the front yard is really nice and the backyard, it's half grass, half weeds. What do I do? And I was like, well, you just got to pull the weeds out. And this is what's going on for, for Israel. They're about to come into the promised land and God's instruction is, instruction is before you get too comfortable, Pull the weeds out. You've got to drive out the people who were living there, um, who were living there already. This was Israel's task be- before them. Uh, and spoiler alert, Israel failed. They got the job started, but they didn't finish it, at least here in Joshua and Judges. And this becomes a source of problems for Israel for many years after that. But Israel's failure to do what God called them to do does not grind this story to a halt. It instead points us to the God who is faithful to do what he promises, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of Israel's constant failure. And that's what I want us to look at today. That's what I want us to to remember from today is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful to do everything he promises, even when our circumstances tell a different story and even when we fail him over and over again, God is still faithful. You see, the task of driving out the sin in our lives is not something that God just leaves us up to on our own. The task of driving out the sin in our our lives and pulling that out is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that, that God comes along and he does that for us and he graciously and kindly invites us to be a part of that. So let's get into this story. Um, We're going to be flying through this at lightning speed. Uh, We did the book of Joshua a few years ago when we were at LCC Northlakes. We did eight weeks on just the book of Joshua, and six of those weeks were just the first 12 chapters. And so to be covering Joshua and Judges and Ruth in one sermon, you just know that we're just going to be flying through it very, very quickly. Um, Let's get into it. So the first part is God leading Israel into the land. So the first five chapters of Joshua detail Israel's entry into the land. Now, this wasn't a case of Israel just kind of moseying on in. It wasn't just like they kind of got to the point like, I guess we should go in now. Yeah, let's get this all head in. It wasn't that at all. 
It was this, this entry into the land was full of symbolism and significance and full of meaning. It, we know what it's like to go to a wedding ceremony and the bride walks up the aisle towards her soon-to-be husband, often led by her father or her parents. It's, it's full of symbolism. It's not just, you know, a wedding isn't just, oh, the, the woman's got to get from the back of the church to the front of the church and say, we'll just put, some, put, put a song on when she does it. How about that? It's not actually like that. It's full of symbolism and meaning. And here, the entry into the land of Canaan is full of symbolism and meaning. It's choreographed almost like a dance. And so there are five uh, parts to this story. Um, so chapter 1, first of all, uh, God comes along and encourages Joshua and Israel, saying that he's with them. He's already given them the land, so, that, so be strong and courageous. Chapter 2, we get the story of Rahab, and that's all I'm going to say about Rahab today. Fantastic story. Go home and read uh, Joshua chapter 2, and then read Joshua chapter 6. Fantastic story. Um, but we're going to get into the actual entry of Israel into the land. So, this dance, this choreographed movement into the land of Canaan has five steps. Step 1 consecrate yourselves. <clears throat> now, consecrating themselves probably involved washing their clothes and abstaining from sexual relations just to prepare, to pre- prepare themselves to see the wonders that God was going to do among them. They had to go through and get themselves ready. As in the same way that a bride would get ready for her wedding day, they had to get themselves ready. Step two, they had to follow the ark. The priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant and the people had to walk behind it, following it all the way. And this was a visual reminder because the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence among them. This was, uh, this was symbolic. It showed that they were following God into the land. This wasn't their thing. It wasn't their initiative. This is God, what God was doing and they were following God into the land. And they actually had to follow the Ark of the Covenant at a distance of 2,000 cubits, which is just shy of one kilometer. And I think the reason for this, not just to uh, help the Israelites to understand just the glory of God and the holiness of God, but also because when they actually entered into the land of Canaan, they had to cross the, the, the Jordan River. And when they did this, when the priests actually were, who were, who were holding the ark, when they stepped foot into the river, the waters dried up, just like the, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt. The waters dried up and stood up at a place, a town about 50 kilometers north called Adam. And so they had to step, and when the priests stepped into it, the waters dried up. And can you imagine the, these priests carrying this ark, and then the rest of Israel standing back, almost a kilometer back, looking down into the valley where the Jordan River was, and the Jordan River was overflowing, and seeing this. Like everyone in Israel would have gotten to see what happened, not just the people in the front row. They would have all seen this amazing miracle take place, the waters drying up miraculously, showing them, yes, God is with us. God is the one who is doing this, and we are following God into the land of Canaan. Step four. Sorry, step three, make a memorial. Once they were across, Joshua instructed, uh, God instructed Joshua to send one man from each of the tribes of Israel, so 12 men, down back into the dry riverbed and collect a stone each. And they had to bring that stone up to Joshua, and then he formed those stones into a memorial, into a monument. And the purpose of that was so that when their kids in years to come would come past there, and they said, Mom, Dad, what are these stones about? Mom and Dad could say, Son, daughter, when we were much younger than this, God brought us into the land of Canaan. The, the, the river Jordan was at full height. It was in the middle of harvest season, and we walked across here on dry ground. 
It was to demonstrate the faithfulness of God to bring them into the land of Canaan. Step number four, circumcision. God instructed Joshua to circumcise the men, and this did two things. Firstly, it showed that Israel were continuing in the covenant agreement that God made with Abraham, which set them apart from all other nations. This this was the sign of the covenant. And secondly, it showed that when victory does happen in their battles, it's come by the power of God's might, not by man's might. You don't have to be a five-star general to know that the worst thing to do to your soldiers just as you enter into the enemy territory is to circumcise them. Like, can you imagine those guys going into battle, like walking around the, the walls of Jericho, limping, saying, ow, with every step? Like, that's what's going on. They, get, they, come, they could have done it beforehand, but God said, no, no, wait till you get into the land of Canaan, and then I'm going to show you that this is going to happen by my might, by my power, so that Israel can't take credit for this. This is actually God's battle. Step number five, Passover. Passover was, of course, the, the meal that their parents ate when they fled Egypt that night 40 years earlier. Passover is the celebration of this, their salvation by the hands of God. And so this dance, this choreographed movement is completed when they rest upon the fact of God's faithfulness to save them. It was a reminder, God is the one who saved us. God is the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt. God is our rescuer. And all of this points to one crucial fact. This is God's doing. God is faithful. God is the one who is leading them into the promised land. They were not there because they were very clever. They were not there because they were very powerful. They were not there because, um, because of their own initiative. God was the one who was doing this. And then this brings us to the actual content, conquest. God leading them, not just into the land, but now God leading them in battle. And this is where we come to the actual battles that Israel fought to drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And it's at this point that we need to address the elephant in the room. How do we make sense of these chapters of the Bible? This is without a doubt one of the hardest parts of God's word to stomach. A a common but inaccurate caricature of this section is that God actually incited Israel to commit genocide and drive out a peaceful people from their land. And I want to draw our attention to this this morning to help us to see that that caricature is not the case. I want to spend some time looking at this and understanding the the context, understanding uh, the history, understanding the geography and some of the things that are happening in this particular time. Keep in mind, though, we've got to be careful that we're not putting God on trial here. We're not trying to get God off the hook here because God is not on the hook. Can can we understand that? We're not trying to soften the edges so that we can feel a bit better about God. It's actually we're we're coming to this going, he's the internal God of the universe. He is not the one on trial. There are, however, a few things that I think will be helpful for us to understand this section of Scripture next time we come to it. So firstly, Canaan was not a unified country of peaceful, innocent people who were just simply trying to live their lives. It had actually endured centuries of ravaging wars between different nations who were all trying to take possession of it. And this resulted with the land of Canaan being splintered and dangerous and chaotic. Think of Mad Max and you're on the right track there. As a result of these wars, the various cities through Canaan were more akin to military outposts than, uh, than peaceful cities and villages, and were very often ruled by bloodthirsty warlords who had been put in place uh, by the nations around them to protect their own national interests. It was a very dangerous place to live. 
Add to this the sexual immorality that was rife there and the very common practice of child sacrifice. Israel's arrival was more akin, more like justice than genocide. Secondly, the book of Joshua very much fits into the genre of ancient conquest literature. And so we get examples of, uh, we get examples of this in, chap- in jo- Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, talking about Jericho, <clears throat> which says, They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. Now, if we were to take this literally, it would be a hard pill to swallow all the time. But should it be taken literally? Well, in conquest literature of the time, it was very common to use hyperbolic language like this to express total victory. So just give, give, give you an example of the way we do this. If I was to say to you, did you watch the Broncos game last night? Melbourne Storm totally annihilated the Broncos. You would not interpret that to mean, oh, the Melbourne Storm brought the existence of the Brisbane Broncos to an end. That's not what happened. And this kind of hyperbolic language was commonplace in ancient conquest literature. There's examples of in other extra-biblical extra sources, and there's examples of this in Joshua as well. Uh, we don't have time to go through them this morning, but if you would like to find out more about that, I've got the, the notes here myself, and I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. Thirdly, God gave provision for people who were living in the land to join in with the Israelites so long as they renounced their gods and pagan worship practices. This happens on a few occasions in Joshua. I think of people like Rahab and the Gibeonites. The point of the conquest is not actually about Israel versus Canaan. The point of the conquest is about God versus sin and driving out sin so that his people would not be led astray by the Canaanites there. Fourthly, and I think most importantly, we need to take into account the character of God here. If all we knew about God was what we read here in Joshua, then yeah, we might interpret him to be a bloodthirsty God intent on bringing condemnation upon sinners. But we know that God is also merciful and gracious. And his love and kindness is far more central to who he is than his judgment and his wrath. We might look at this with disdain. We might look at this situation with disdain and think that God is being unjust here. But we need to be very careful to not make the horrific mistake of thinking that we can look back at this event and we can see the hearts of every single individual who are there and we can decide that we would have done things a lot better than God if we were in his place. That is a horrific mistake to make. God, who knows all things, who sees his people as a whole and as individuals, he is perfectly just and he carries out his justice to perfection. So let's trust in the character of God with that. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about that. And if you'd like to find out more, like to talk about it more, just talk it out a bit, I am more than happy to have that conversation with you. But now let's look at the actual conquest. The way that this book is structured helps us to understand the whole picture clearly. In chapters 6 to 8, we get a really detailed account of the first two battles. And then from chapters 9 to 12, we get a much broader summary of the rest of the battles. And then from chapters 13 to 21, we read about the land being divided up and and allocated to the various tribes of Israel. Now, just before Israel launched into their assault at the end of uh, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is met by the commander of the Lord's army who has a sword drawn. Joshua asked him, are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? And the reply from this angel is incredibly important. He answers, neither. 
I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. In other words, Joshua, I haven't come to fight for you. I haven't come to fight for Israel. I haven't come to fight for Canaan. I haven't come to fight for Jericho or any of the other cities. I've come to fight for the Lord. I have come on the Lord's bidding. The battle belongs to God. You see, the question of Joshua is not, is God on Israel's side? This is the question that Joshua is asking the commander of the Lord's army. It's the wrong question, Joshua. The real, real question is, is Israel on God's side? Will Israel do what the Lord commands? God is not on Israel's side in the sense that Israel can do no wrong. There are lots that Israel can do wrong, and there are lots that Israel do do wrong. But God is on God's side, and God fights for his purposes, which are about establishing his kingdom on earth so that that all mankind might know him and worship him and come into a relationship with him. Now, he has graciously included Israel in his plan that if Israel were to forsake God and become just like the Canaanites, they would find themselves being treated just like the Canaanites, which if we read on in the scriptures, we'll read this is exactly what happens to Israel in the years to come. It's not about God versus the Canaanites. This is God versus sin. And the first two battles that Israel faced illustrate this perfectly. The first battle is against the city of Jericho. And Israel wins the battle, but they can't really take credit for it. All they did was walk around the city every day, once a day, for six days. And then on the seventh day, they walked around it seven times. And at the end of it, they all yelled and screamed a whole lot and blew their trumpets. And then these giant walls of Jericho fell over. So they got victory, but they can't really claim credit for it. So the first victory, the first battle is a victory for them. And God gave them very, very clear instructions not to, um, not to take anything from Jericho as the spoils of war. Very, very important. Don't take anything. Everything has to be diverted over to destruction. The second battle is with a city called Ai. But Israel lost that battle in quite humiliating form, and it's revealed that God actually let that happen. Why? Because Israel sinned. Israel did not do as the Lord God commanded them. It turns out that after the battle with Jericho, a man named Achan, or Achan if you live in Australia, uh, he, he saw, he, he took some of the spoils of war and took them with him. He took some of the spoils of war. And when he's found out, he says something incredible. He says... When I saw among the spoils of war a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and I took them. Now, does that remind you of anybody? Isn't that exactly what Eve said in the garden? She she saw the fruit of the tree. She desired it, so she took it. Achan here saw the spoils of war, desired it, and took it. See, this is the anatomy of sin. This is what sin is, that we look to something that isn't God. We, we've, we could have access to God, but we look to something that isn't God, and we say, that's good for me. I want that. I want to be in control. And we reach out, and we take it. That's what sin is, acting upon our desires to, to, to try and supplant God. No sooner had the walls of Jericho fallen as a visible act of God's triumph over evil. I mean, just consider this from Achan's perspective. A few days later, a few days earlier, he had crossed the river Jordan on dry ground. 
He had seen the walls of Jericho come crumbling down. He'd, he'd witnessed the, the glory of the Lord in those moments and yet still decided, I'm going to take that. I'm going to disobey God. I'm going to do what I want. And friends, Achan is every one of us. That is us over and over again. So God let Israel fail that battle. God would not let Israel become like Canaan. Remember, this is God versus sin, not God versus Canaan. So Achan is punished, Israel repents, Joshua renews their commitment to following the Lord, and then they have victory over Ai. In chapters 9 and 12, we get an overview of the remaining battles, uh, the north, south, east, and west. And this is followed up by um, a, a section which, which is devoted to dividing up the land of Canaan and allocating that to each tribe of Israel. Now, if you're reading through the Bible and you get to Joshua 13, um, you're probably coming across what is, I would say, the most boring part of the Bible. Some people call it, um, talk about it like reading a map but without pictures. Because it kind of is that. It's just instructions and directions and lengths and things. And it's tedious. And you're like, after reading through a few chapters of it, you're like, what in earth is that? I don't even know where this place is. And it goes on and on and on. And it's detailed. And you're like, what is this? Now, we might think it's tedious and boring, but it was not tedious and boring for the Israelites because it was a sign of God's very specific, detailed faithfulness to them. They didn't just go, here's the land, have fun. He gave them the land inch by inch, foot by foot, mile by mile. Again, I don't know why I'm using the American metric system there. This brings us then to Israel's failure. The book, book of Joshua ends with Joshua giving a speech to Israel and it's very much an ultimatum to serve the Lord and to continue the unfinished work of driving out the people and their gods so that they do not become ensnared by them. The people at the end of Joshua, they swear that they will worship the Lord their God and not forsake him, not, and not forsake him for the idols in the land, but they don't. They fail. Israel fails to fully drive out the remaining people of the land. And this brings us into the tragic story of Judges. Judges is one of those stories that you read and it's, it makes you want to tear your hair out. Let me just read to you Judges chapter 2 verse 10. This scripture, this verse is simply maddening. It says, That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, that, that whole generation, that's Joshua and his generation. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. Now, as I was preparing for this, I saw this when I read this at the start of the year, and I wrote in the margins, Why? Why did this generation get raised up without knowing who God is? They had these memorial stones. They were meant to go and show their kids. This is what God did. They were meant to teach their kids about the Lord, but they just they didn't. And so Israel becomes increasingly unfaithful to God. And the book of Judges is the tragic telling of their cyclic failure. Over and over again they fail. Over and over again God rescues them. And over and over again they fall back into sin in worse ways. This cycle is summed up in Judges chapter 2, verse 11 to, 11 to 23. Firstly, the Israelites did what was evil. Following that, God brought disaster on them. Thirdly, God then raised up judges to save them because of his pity for them. And then fourthly, after that judge died, the people went back into their sinful ways only worse. And this happens over and over again in Judges. Some of the judges that God raised up, they were, they were good people, they were great people. 
Others were cowards. Some were just lust-filled maniacs. And that just underlines the point, underlines the point that in all of the Bible, there is only one hero of Scripture, and that is Jesus Christ. The rest of us, we're just, we're just idiots. We're just idiots following Jesus along the way. These judges, they get worse over time. And Judges is a bloody and violent and very often appalling account of Israel's failure. And it ends in a bit of a stalemate. Because it's God's people. They've got God's law. They've got, God, they've got the, the tabernacle. They've got the, the sacrificial system. They've got their way of approaching God. So they're under his blessing. They order what it means to be under his good rule. They're in his land. And yet the problem seems to be them. The problem seems to be the sin in their hearts. We get to this point of Scripture and we wonder, is there any hope for mankind? If the problem here is mankind, then what mankind needs is more than just the sacrificial system, more than just the temple and the law. Mankind needs a new heart. Mankind needs to be born again. And this helps us to see that this is all about Jesus. He was the one who came um, to, to fulfill everything that God was doing here. All of this foreshadowed the time that Jesus himself would come. He would come and he would give us a new heart. He would cause his spirit to dwell inside of our hearts and write his law on our hearts, cause us to be born again. The Old Testament points us to Jesus over and over again as the answer to the incomplete picture of the Old Testament. This is all about Jesus. So, is there hope for mankind? The answer is a resounding yes. The very last line of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And that there sets up the wonderful story of Ruth. It tells us there is no king, which tells us that what they needed then was a king, one who could rule on behalf of God, pointing people to God, shepherding the people, leading them in righteousness. And this sets us up for the incredible message of hope in Ruth. And this is the final part of my sermon, God is faithful. See, if you're reading the Bible left to right, and you've just been reading through Judges, you get to the book of Ruth, and it's like you've been walking along sharp, hot gravel on with bare feet for like a kilometer, and then you get to like lush, green, beautiful grass, like just like healthy, and it's been renovated, and it's just wonderful... Ruth is fantastic. You read Ruth and you're like, you can breathe again. You're like, oh, I can take a breath of fresh air because of Ruth. Ruth is, um, gives us this immense hope for Israel's future because it plants the seeds of the royal line of King David. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, but she marries an Israelite family. And that there is like warning signs, right? Like they were not meant to do that. Israelites were, Israelites were not meant to do that. But this particular family, they, she marries into this family. And then tragically, all the men in her husband's family die. So her husband dies, her brother-in-law dies, and her father-in-law dies. And she, so, so she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel. But not just to anywhere in Israel, but to Naomi's hometown, the little town of Bethlehem. Hint, hint. Something's happening here, right? Something's developing, something's bubbling under the surface. Ruth meets a respectable Jewish man named Boaz, and he basically takes responsibility for Ruth and for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and he redeems her from the difficult situation that she's in. Ruth and Boaz, they get married, and they have a son named Obed. Obed grows up, and he has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up, and he has a bunch of sons, the youngest of which is David. 
David it becomes the king of Israel. And it's from that line of David, from the royal line of David, that we get our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at King David next week, but this little seed of hope in Ruth is the explosive power of God's faithfulness to his people. Israel kept failing over and over again, and yet God is faithful to his people to do what he promised for them. As we read through the Old Testament, you kind of get the impression that the purpose of the darkness of mankind's sin and judges is to show how incredibly bright the light of God's faithfulness is in Ruth. We should look at this and go, wow, look at how spectacularly Israel failed, and look at how God was still faithful to them, and that is good news for you and I. Because you and I fail every single day. We fail to be faithful to God. We fail to think rightly about God. We fail to bring glory to God. Over and over again, we shake our fists at God and say, no, I want to be in your place. I want to be in control of my own life. You shouldn't be God. I'm the one who should be God. But God's faithfulness to his people, as demonstrated here in these books, despite the circumstances and despite the failure, is blindingly beautiful. And the way that I want to end today is by pointing to that beautiful light so that we might just become a little bit more blinded by it. If God is that faithful to his people there, how faithful is he towards us who are in Christ? God is faithful to do all that he promises. So, do you sometimes worry that you're not saved? Jesus says in John 6, 37, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I was having this discussion with Michael this morning about this verse. That is rock-solid assurance. We could just end it there. I could have just read that scripture this morning and then walked off, and that would be far more powerful than any stupid story I could share about grass. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you concerned that the sin that you're struggling through right now will never relent and you're always going to be plagued by it? Whether that's gossip, alcoholism, perpetual lying, lust, greed, materialism, consumerism, whatever it is, let's listen to God's words through the Apostle Paul. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Our sanctification, the driving out of our sin, is something that God does. And we get the wonderful blessing of being a part of it. Maybe you're worried that if you follow Jesus, you're going to miss out on whatever else life has to offer. Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. He is the only source of life. Maybe you feel that there's too much weight on your shoulders, and if you don't carry this weight, the world around you will fall apart. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all of you, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're worried that God has lost patience with you and heaven is now out of the question. Jesus says in John 14, 3, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may be also. Friends, we serve a God who is faithful.
He is faithful to save us from our sin, and He is faithful to lead us in the battle to drive out our sin so that we might enjoy and experience the joy and wonder of all that He created for us to enjoy so that we can have life in Him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.